Poet Robert Pinsky, who may not need an introduction, compiled more than 130 poems at the extremes of feeling for his new anthology, anthology The Mind Has Cliffs of Fall, which you can purchase right behind you. Despair, mania, rage, guilt, derangement, fantasy, poetry is our most intimate, personal source for the urgency of these experiences. Tonight, the three-term U.S. Poet Laureate and co-founder of the Favorite Poem Project will be joined by his co-founder, Maggie Dietz, herself a, well, a widely published and acclaimed author of poetry. During a year-long open call for submissions, their project collected favorite poems from 18,000 Americans aging, excuse me, from ages five to 97 and produced dozens of short videos of individuals reading and talking about their choices. It's online and a worthy project to explore. And we also have the book in our library if you want to check it out. <laughs> so before I bring out Robert and Maggie, um, I was asked to select a poem from this wonderful anthology here. And I chose Funeral Oration for a Mouse by Alan Dugan. This Lord was an anxious brother and a living diagram of fear. Full of himself, he brought disease like a gift to give to his hosts. Marked in a cat's mustache, but sounding like a bird, he was a ghost of lesser noises, and a kitchen pest for whom some ladies stand on chairs. So, Lord, accept our felt, accept our felt through minor guilt for an ignoble foe, an ancient sin, the murder of a guest who shared our board just once he ate too slowly, dying in our trap from necessary hunger and a broken back. Humors of love aside, the mouse trap was our own opinion of the mouse. But for the mouse, it is the tree of knowledge with its consequential fruit, the true cross of the gate of hell. Even to approach it makes him like or better than its maker. His courage as a spoiler never once impressed us, but to go out cautiously at night into the dining room, what bravery, what hunger, younger by far, in dying he was older than us all. His mobile tail and nose spasmed in the pinch of our annoyance. Why then, at that snapping sound, did we, victorious, begin to laugh without delight? Our stomachs, deep in an analysis of their own stolen baits, and asking, Lord, host, to whom are we the pests? Contracted and demanded a retreat from our machine and its effect of death, as if the mouse's fingers, skinnier than hairpins and, it's, and as breakable as cheese, could grasp our grasping lives and in their drowning movement, pull us under two into the common death and beyond the mousetrap. 
Please join me in welcoming Maggie Dietz and Robert Pinsky. I'm Maggie Dietz. I'll, I'll just take a moment to, to frame what Robert and I will be doing tonight. Um, uh, thank you, Carol. You, you read that poem beautifully. Um, so we'll each um, read a couple of poems from the anthology to sort of situate us in poetry, and then um, we may end up reading a couple more as we have a conversation, um, and then eventually we'll have a conversation with, with you all. Um, and open up to a, a Q and A. Um, so I believe Robert is going to begin. I'll try to um, I'll try to exemplify what I hope this book does. I heard a quotation I liked recently. I don't know who said this. Someone said about the mystery of poetry uh, that uh, what makes a poetry appealing is ineffable. It's ineffable but we keep trying to F it. <laughs> and um, the very first section in this book, the sections are called things like grief, love and rage, despair. The last one is manic laughter. And the first section is called the sleep of reason. And the very first poem in the book each section goes from things that are quite old. So love and rage goes from Sappho to people who were born 25 years ago. And you go chronologically in each section. So the, one of the oldest poems in the book and the first poem in the book to me embodies how you can't explain why a work of art works. It's worth trying. We do, we do try to F it, but it is ineffable. And it, the poem for me is an example of how we can be quite moved, memorably moved by something inexplicable. Somebody told me this sometimes appears in children's books, which seems bizarre to me. The Man of Double Deed, anonymous. This is probably early 16th century, maybe a little earlier than that. The man of double deed. There was a man of double deed who, filled, who sowed his garden full of seed. When the seed began to grow, it was like a garden full of snow. When the snow began to melt, it was like a ship without a belt. When the ship began to sail, twas like a bird without a tail. When the bird began to fly, twas like an eagle in the sky. When the sky began to roar, twas like a lion at my door. When my door began to crack, twas like a stick across my back. When my back began to smart, twas like a penknife in my heart. When my heart began to bleed, twas death and death, and death indeed. <laughs> all those twos, this, that, this, that, this, that, all those twos, those pairs, and then the triple, death, and death, and death indeed. 
That's poetry. And um, it's form. It's content too, but in a way the main thing you can say by it is um, it works. Um, my head notes, I tried to keep the head notes of these poems are between five words and 30 words. The book has no yak yak. My introduction is very short and the idea is partly these things don't need a lot of help. Uh, the sentence I have in that note in that poem is, as in dreams or some forms of mental illness, as in dreams or some forms of mental illness, the systematic, the systematic becomes a form of derangement. You know, it's insanely systematic. What's a ship without a belt? It just feels right. Um, I'll read one other poem that helps, in my opinion, helps show what this book is and what it tries to do. The title of The Mind Has Cliffs of Fall comes from um, a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. So sometime in the middle of the 19th century, towards the latter part, I guess, this young homosexual Catholic convert priest who never expected to publish poetry wrote this poem which, from which I derived the title of the book. My head note here says, as in the selections from Dante and John Donne, there is no worst. It's the absoluteness. It's all. It's the most or the least. It's the extreme. No worst, there is none. No worst, there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil wink, on an age-old anvil wince and sing. Isn't that just a great phrase? On an age-old anvil wince and sing. Then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force, I must be brief. Oh, the mind, the mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may, who ne'er hung there, nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort, serves in a whirlwind. All life, death, doth end and each day dies with sleep. Again, you just feel. Um, so now, um, I'm going to ask uh, Maggie Dietz, who as Carol, who 
read the Dugan poem so nicely to you. As uh, Carol said, Maggie is the co-founder of the Favorite Poem Project with me. And uh, there is a poem by Maggie uh, in this book. So now I'm going to ask you, it's your turn, uh, please read uh, your poem and Zoloft and um, pick something else in the book to read as well. Thanks, Robert. Robert was my teacher. I still always love to hear him read and talk. Um, okay, so this poem, Zoloft, I'll read Robert's very short head note. The poem is titled Zoloft. Um, I'll, the, the title for my last book uh, comes from a line in the poem. The title of my book is not Zoloft. Um, and uh, Robert says, to choose the truth of sadness, even the truth of despair, can amount to a discovering, logic-defying joy. Um, and this poem uh, takes place in various places, but uh, a lot of it is, is right here in Boston in Copley Square. So I, I don't even need to tell this audience that the BPL is the Boston Public Library. But that's what I usually say. Zoloft. Two weeks into the bottle of pills, I'd remember exiting the one-hour lens grinder at Copley Square the same store that years later would be blown black and blood-spattered by a backpack bomb at the marathon. But this was back when terror happened elsewhere. I walked out wearing the standard Boston graduate student wire rims, my first ever glasses, and saw little people in office tower windows working late under fluorescent lights. File cabinets with drawer seams, blossomed wire bins, and little hands answered little black telephones, rested receivers on bloused shoulders, real as the tiny flushing toilets, the paneled wainscoting and armed candelabras I gasped at as a child in the miniatures room at the Art Institute in Chicago. It was October and I could see the edges of everything. Where the branches had been a blur of fire, now there were scalloped oak leaves, leathery maple five points, plain as on the Canadian flag. When the wind lifted the leaves, the trees went pale, then dark again in waves. Exhaling manholes, convenience store tiled with boxed cigarettes and gum, the BPL's forbidding fixtures lit to their razor tips, and Trinity's windows holding individual panes of glass between bent metal like hosts in a monstrance. It was wonderful. It made me horribly sad. It was the same years later with the pills, as I walked across the field, the usual field, to the same river, I felt a little burst of joy when the sun cleared a cloud. It was freaking Christmas, and I was five years old. I laughed out loud, picked up my pace. The sun was shining on me, on the trees, on the whole damn world. It was exhilarating and sad, that sham. Nothing had changed, or I had. But who wants to be that kind of happy? The lenses, the doses, nothing should be that easy.
So there are several Emily Dickinson poems in the anthology, and this is one of my favorite poems in the world. Um, and uh, it's in the section titled Love and Rage, um, but there is also a section titled Despair. Um, and one of the things I'll talk to Robert a little bit about is um, figuring out which chapter to put the poems in because so many of them could fit into multiple. Um, I cannot live with you. Robert says, the plain and the strange making an extended, unforgettable gesture. I cannot live with you. It would be life. And life is over there behind the shelf the sexton keeps the key to, putting up our life, his porcelain, like a cup discarded of the housewife, quaint or broke, a newer savor pleases, old ones crack. I could not die with you, from one must wait to shut the other's gaze down. You could not, and I, could I stand by and see you freeze without my right of frost, death's privilege? Nor could I rise with you, because your face would put out Jesus, that new grace glow plain and foreign on my homesick eye, except that you then he shone closer by. They judge us, how, for you served heaven, you know, or sought to, I could not because you saturated sight, and I had no more eyes for sordid excellence as paradise. And were you lost, I would be, though my name rang loudest on the heavenly fame. And were you saved, and I condemned to be where you were not, that self were hell to me. So we must meet apart, you there, I here, with just the door ajar, that oceans are, and prayer, and that white sustenance, despair. I feel like clapping for Emily Dickinson. <laughs> um, so, Robert, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the categories. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say what the chapter headings are. Um, uh, the sleep of reason is the first. Um, grief, love and rage, despair, guilt, blame, shame, and then manic laughter is the last. Um, and, um, to spend time with the book is really to engage with the extremes of feeling um, in a way that oddly does not feel overwhelming, but, um, but really exhilarating um, in the way that um, art gives shape to what feels overwhelming, right? Uh, so... Um, I wanted to talk to you about two things. One, when Robert and I and a couple other poets who have poems in the anthology did an event at the Boston Book Festival, and a woman there in the Q&A after it was all over said, grief, despair, 
Why didn't you have a chapter on hope? To which Robert said, do you want to say it or should I? Hope is boring. (laughs) And then elaborated. Um, But I thought maybe you could talk a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, Probably that was an impulsive answer. I have a compulsion to try to be funny. But there was something to what I said, and probably a better answer might have been to say, you can't write a poem about despair without invoking hope. It's the only way you can do it. Um, A long answer would have to do with the idea of despair and being. Uh, I'll say in preface, I am not a Christian, I have never been a Christian, and I will never be a Christian. But when I began studying English poetry, I became very interested in the Thomistic or Augustinian idea of evil as an absence. Evil is not a reality, as darkness is an absence of light energy, and cold is an absence of heat energy. In that Thomistic system, evil is absence. Even the devil is good insofar as he exists. He's defined by non-being, but there's a being that surrounds him. And when we do evil, when we sin, it's the soul is destructive to itself. This is very much the theme of uh, Dante's Inferno. It's as though the soul bit a chunk out of itself, or reduced itself. And uh, as a former Orthodox Jew, a secular person, I found that idea very powerful. And a corollary of that idea is that one hope, which was what the English called despair, despair, absence of hope, is the worst sin because it makes you think you're too evil for grace, you're too evil to be saved. You deny the always the omnipresent ubiquitous possibility of grace. And that is why it's the worst sin. And I've spent a good deal of my life as an American college professor. And on campuses of the kind that I have taught at, rather hard to get into expensive schools, there's no question that a lot of ordinary sins are not really that important. There's relatively little murder, etc. But despair, which in our modern jargon we call depression, is rife. It's everywhere. Partly because the opportunity is so great, there's a beautiful campus with all these wonderful professors and books, and I don't feel up to it. And in my own life, it's also an issue. So when that woman said, why is there not a chapter about hope, I meant that hope was boring. And to me, the being of that Hopkins poem that I read to you about his wrestling with grief and despair, uh, it cheers me up. It's fun to read it. I submit to you it was fun for you to hear it. And when Carol read to you that poem about the funeral oration for the mouse, which was in a way death and death and death indeed, because it's real, because it tells the truth, it makes us happy. It's fun to be in the presence of actual being. 
in a way that false cheeriness and poems about hope can really be a downer. So that's my answer to your question. <laughs> um, yeah, lies are downers. Not that hope is always a lie. Um, so when I read the dedication to the book, because I know you, um, I know that the, those are the names of your grandchildren. The book is dedicated to Margaret, Benjamin, Rosalind, Lillian, Hazel, Simon, Elliot, and Sam. That was eight, count them, eight. Um, and I think it's really cool that, you know, a grandfather would dedicate a book with um, section headings like despair and love and rage to these children. Um, some of them younger than my children. They range in age from three to 23. So, um, so can you talk about that, that decision to make this book yeah. in particular for them? Well, a kind of footnote to that dedication, I'm glad you brought it up, is I, I had to discuss with the grandmother of those same people um, the question of copies that you give. So for the 23-year-old, the 18-year-old, and the 16-year-old, they got copies along with a copy to their parents. For the three-year-old, the six-year-old, the nine-year-old, and the 11-year-old, these are in various families, by the way, we're not Mormons. There are three, <laughs> there, there are three uh, families. The parents were given copies inscribed to Margaret and Benjamin and Rosalind and Lillian, saying, you are now entrusted with this. And when you think that person is of a suitable age, um, to make only purposeful marks in the book, uh, then it is your, your role to pass the book on. Uh, I, I was trying to pay the compliment to those children that I think they're serious people and that this thing I value that's been such a source of joy in my life, uh, I'd like to pass on to them and that what I said to you all about despair and the Thomist idea of privation or absence as um, evil and being as the soul energy that is good, um, I was trying to give that to them. And I was paying them the compliment of not assuming that they somehow would be insulated from sadness or that their love would never be mingled with rage. You can tell from a glance at a baby that rage and love are mingled in us quite frequently, maybe inherently. Um, so there are a couple of poems that I would love to hear you read, that I've heard you read at various times. Um, and um, one of them uh, draws attention to how succinct those headings are that you created. And it's the um, Robert Hayden's Those, those Winter Sundays. Do you have a page um, number I, I will get it for you, I'm sorry. I do, somewhere. I got it. Okay, great. 
Robert Hayden, 1913-1980, those winter Sundays, and my note quotes two words in the poem, austere, end quote, and offices, end quote, the ardor of cold words, the beautiful formality of no one as distinct from the more colloquial nobody, which he doesn't say. He says no one ever thanked him. He doesn't say nobody ever thanked him. Those winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know? of love's austere and lonely offices. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? As with the man of double deed, you sort of know what's coming. Here it comes, here comes that, here comes this. And it startles you each time. And. Uh, what did I know, what did I know, is like, it was like a penknife in my heart. My heart began to bleed death and death and death indeed. You feel the form clicking into where it's been headed. And as with great music, you're also, each time, even if you've read the poem or heard the music a thousand times, you feel that uh, you're startled by it. And, um, that's why this is a poem that a lot of people love very much. I think sometimes um, in, when artists are making art, when poets are writing, um, and they're dealing with unwieldy um, emotions, um, like grief or the complexities of a relationship between father and son, um, um, you would think the impulse would be to move toward melodrama or exaggeration, but the best artists use restraint. Tremendous restraint in writing about, I think, these really difficult things. Um, and um, another example of that is the, the Ben Johnson yes. on My First Son. Um, and I love the way you talk about the simplicity of that poem, so I was hoping you could read that. Yeah. Do you have and I'm going to try. I've got, my notes are so tiny and it's kind of... The understatement of, for example, in the Hayden poem, and polished my good shoes as, as well. well. It's so plain. Every word is plain. And polished my good shoes. And what I say about no one is rather nobody. He doesn't say, and polished my good shoes too, or and also polished my good shoes. Just slightly formal. And polished my good shoes as well. It keeps the rhythm iambic, but it also puts a ceremonial note along with the plainness. 
So it's plain and it's also ceremonial. It's 30, page 37. Page 37. Ben Johnson in the poem, it's a very, very plainly written poem to use that word again. He makes a distinction of the last line that sounds completely like the English language, but in fact he's imitating a line of the Latin poet Horace. But it's buried, you, you don't need to know that. My note says, trembling yet calm. Exactly between the impossible extremes of total bereavement on the one side and complete Christian consolation on the other side. And he's not pretending to either one of those. He's there in between. And my first son, farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. Seven years thou art lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I lose all father now? For why will man lament the state he should invite to a so soon escaped world's and flesh's rage, and if no other misery, yet age? Rest in soft peace, and asked, say, here doth lie Ben Jonson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such as what he loves may never like too much. All his vows be such. He doesn't pretend that he's there. And the Horace is uh, amare and placare to be pleased. You know, English, it's passive. Uh, Latin is like Spanish and, and, and Italian. It's a, to be, it may gusta, to never, there's what he loves, may never like too much. And it's, it's, Pound quotes Anatole France as saying, the best writing varies from the cliches just enough just a little bit. And Pound says that used to be called classicism. And there's the cliche, rest in soft peace. Uh, rest in soft peace and ask, say, here doth lie Ben Johnson. Some people object to saying his best piece of poetry was the child. But he's defined the difference between the child's immortal soul, which the father and mother don't make. And he's confessing his attachment to the child's hat the way the child's glance was, the child's voice, the child's favorite, the presence, the being, all the transitory parts of the child that the Christian consolations say it doesn't matter and that the father is attached to. Benjamin says, the child of my right hand enjoy Benjamin in Hebrew is child of right hand. And uh, it couldn't be simpler and plainer and uh, I think it is quite great. Um, so Robert did not uh, include any of his own poems in the anthology, although um, he might have <laughs> um, any number of poems. And um, I thought maybe it'd be nice to, to end our time of talking up here before we open up to your questions um, 
by hearing uh, a poem or two that you have written. Sure. Um, and um, so maybe, what do you think? Grief? Okay. Okay. Then I think I might ask for one more. <laughs> in the past, that book, that poem has always been in this book. It's in there. As Jack Benny says in another context, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> Grief. Grief. I don't think anybody ever is really divorced, said Lenny. Also, he said, I don't think anybody ever is really married. Because English was really Lenny's second language, and because of Yiddish and its displaced place in the world, he never really believed in his own prose. He wrote sentences the way a great boxer moves. Near the end, he said to me, I'm in hell. Something Lenny might have said about hunting for a parking space in Berkeley. <laughs> Mike, too, was himself. His last month, too weak to paint, or make prints, he sat and made drawings of flowers, ink attentive to rhythms of beech plum, wisteria, lily, forms like acrobats or Cossack dancers. Mike had a vision of his body dead on his studio floor, seen from high above. He didn't feel sad or afraid at seeing it, he said, just sorry for the person who would find it. You can't say nobody ever really dies. Of course they do. Lenny died. Mike died. But the odd thing is, the person still makes a shape distinct and present in the mind as an object in the hand. The presence in the absence. It isn't comfort, it's grief. And then, um, Robert, I would love it if you would also read Antique. I think that it's connected to the Dickinson poem that, that I read. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and also, um, to the Dugan that Carol uh, mm -hmm. started us with. Um, I hope this poem is in a way about Adam and Eve, and it certainly involves my own love life. Uh, but in a certain way, it's really about my mom and dad. My parents um, had a very stormy relationship. Even in their 80s, they were still breaking up and he moved out which had happened many times, then they moved back in together again. And uh, they were, um, everybody says this about this, their parents, but many people say it about my parents. They were extremely physically beautiful people and um, 
kind of feckless. So that's an unnecessary uh, introduction that it pleases, <laughs> pleases me to make. The poem is called Antique. Antique. I drowned in the fire of having you. I burned in the river of not having you. We lived together for hours in a house of a thousand rooms, and we were parted for a thousand years. Ten minutes ago, we raised our children, who cover the earth and have forgotten that we existed. It was not the worldly illusion of Maya. It was not a ladder to perfection. It was this cold sunlight falling on this warm earth. When I turned, you went to hell. When your ship fled the battle, I followed you and lost the world without regret, but with stormy recriminations. Someday, someday far down that corridor of horror, the future, someone who buys this picture of you for the frame at a stall in a dwindled city will study your face and decide to harbor it for a little while longer from the waters of anonymity and the acids of breath. <laughs>